Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I'm here with Michael Zarling. This is our Thirsty Podcast. And today we wanted to cover the first five chapters of Revelation. Uh, did you have some notes or history on the background of Revelation at all? Yeah, so uh, Revelation is written by St. John, and the Greek word is apocalypse. And so that's where you get the apocalypse of St. John, or it's really when I always introduce it to the congregation, when we have scripture readings for worship, it is Jesus Christ's revelation to St. John. It is Jesus that is giving John these things to write down while he's on the island of Patmos. And when I was over in Greece, I was able to go on to that island, just a very tiny island. It used to be a prison island, kind of like Alcatraz. And John, as part of his persecution of the Christian church, was there under the emperor's order. Uh, He's the only one of the apostles that wasn't martyred, as far as we know. Uh, We also don't necessarily know that he died on Patmos. In fact, uh, I think there are some uh, early church records of the apostle coming back to Uh, the mainland uh, after he was much older, uh, but uh, I don't think it's accurate necessarily to say that he died there either, but uh, we shouldn't think of it. I I like how you said it's like Alcatraz. I never thought of that before, but um, that's probably the best way to think of it. Uh, Mediterranean Island might sound like a nice vacation, but uh, for John, it was uh, an imprisonment. And and I, I remember thinking this myself, actually, when I uh, spent six months in Germany and I was engaged to be married and uh, I, th- there was a good group of supportive fellow Christians there um, so I don't want to belittle uh, the role that they played in my life but I found myself thinking uh, boy it sure would be nice to it, I, got a, I got a little bit homesick it sure would be nice to be around my friends and family and, and see my fiance who then became my wife and be with the people that I love and uh, there's an ocean separating you from them um, so and I also appreciate you saying it's Jesus revelation those are the first words the revelation from Jesus Christ and uh, apocalypse or revelation means uncovering it's uh, something is being revealed you never would have figured this out that's going to be a theme right that I that I'm going to keep repeating over and over you never would have figured this thing out unless God uncovered it for you and a couple things too is as we go through revelation to understand that it's not one continuous story. That's where a lot of other Christians and churches and church bodies are wrong is uh, applying everything exactly uh, in, in a continuous straight line. No, it's, it's a circular story. It's a story that begins with Christ's ascension and then ends with his second coming. But it tells the story uh, from different angles. It's kind of like if you were watching, say, an NFL football game, those will be starting soon, and then wondering, well, how did that play take place? And then you've got an example uh, from the field, uh, the camera from the end zone, a camera from above, and so forth, uh, and you're watching in slow motion, and that's the way Revelation is, four or five times telling the same story. Uh, And... One thing that I'm talking to our people about, because I'll be doing a Bible study on Revelation, is it really isn't all that hard. Most people think it's really difficult, but the key is, if you don't understand something, you know, go look it up in the Old Testament. Go look at, basically, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and that's Revelation. It's just told, the story is told with pictures. Uh, it's not chronological, uh, I think is another way to say what, what uh, you were I didn't want to cut in on you, but uh, that, was, that was what I was thinking. It's not a chronological beginning, middle, and end. And uh, the, the other thing I like to say that you just sort of teed me up to say is um, it's, not, it's, at the, it's the last book of the Bible for a reason. It's because you, you really need to read all the other books uh, before you read this one, and then this one will make a lot more sense. And then one, one more thing before we get into it. Uh, on Monday, my wife Shelly and I dropped our third daughter, Lydia, off at school at Dubuque University. She's 
learning to become a commercial airline pilot. And while we were sitting there at lunch and the president was talking to us and he talked to the students and the, and the parents about the vaccine uh, for COVID. And it was interesting. He said, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Well, he didn't tell you what to do, but he pretty much uh, guilted everyone into thinking what they were supposed to do. And we had that conversation with Lydia afterwards. And we said, did you understand what you're saying? She just laughed. She said, oh, yeah, I got it. And uh, I bring it up because uh, we, we were encouraging her, just remain strong with what your feelings are and your beliefs. And she said, oh, there's a couple other girls on the cross-country team that were getting tested like she was. And I said, well, that's good because uh, I said, it's hard to stand by yourself, but it's a lot easier when you have others standing with you. And I think that's the theme of Revelation, not that it's about vaccines or any of that kind of stuff, but it's a, it's a book about Christians having to stand strong against persecution because they're, being, because they're Christians. And it, it's a reminder from Christ, there are other Christians that are standing with you. There are saints in heaven that are there uh, waiting for you. And then the other thing we talked about with Lydia before we left and we left without, without crying, was that, uh, I said, you're a really hard worker. Uh, I said, all this summer, you've worked three jobs every day, working between 14 and 16 hours. You have to do that same, have that same kind of hard work principle, so you receive your goal. Uh, Cross-country, ROTC, flight school, on top of being a full-time student. And I think that's another theme of the book of Revelation is, there's going to be a lot of hard work going through everything that we're going to go through because it's a book of persecution or written about persecution. And yet Jesus says, there are things waiting for you, a crown of victory, a palm branch of victory, streaming into heaven with all of the saints. I, I think those are the two big themes of Revelation. One thing that uh, never struck me until recently, I've, I've gone through this book several times in my life, uh, but one thing that never struck me until recently was um, th the fact that uh, the first three verses are um, talking to a pastor and his congregation, more or less. That, that's maybe oversimplifying it, but uh, at least it puts a clear picture in your head because uh, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and that reading means to read out loud, and blessed are those who are those, more than one, who hear it. So um, the, John is expecting that uh, the churches will take this, and there will be one guy standing up and reading it out loud in front of everybody, and everybody else will be listening, and he says, Blessed is the one who's doing that reading, and blessed are the ones who are hearing it. And as we go through this, we're probably not going to have a lot of time for application because it's really explaining a lot of things. Uh, and as you said, it's written to John, but then it's really written to for John to give to seven churches. And uh, so the churches are uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I encourage you to, to look those up on a map and you'll see, they're not just, uh, names aren't just thrown, uh, thrown out there. It's a, it's a direction of the way a messenger dropping off these letters to these specific congregations that makes sense. Did you uh, happen to visit any of those when you were over there, other than Patmos? Uh, we would have gone to Ephesus, which is, which is huge. And what's interesting, I think it's in Ephesus, because you were saying maybe John didn't die on, uh, on Patmos, is that, uh, I know you just preached this last weekend on uh, St. Mary, the mother of our Lord, that Mary is probably, according to church history, hanging out with St. John all of this time. And so it's interesting, there's a really huge church, I think it's in Ephesus, uh, called St. John's, and I think there's a chapel nearby of St. Mary as well. Yeah, that would have been, uh, Jesus gave guardianship of his mother to John, um, and uh, it, she would have definitely been accompanying him uh, a lot of different places. Um, 
the the book starts uh, with a greeting in chapter one that's similar to a lot of the epistles, uh, particularly ones that Paul wrote, uh, grace to you and peace. But then it goes into a much lengthier uh, follow up to that grace and peace um, from him who was and who is uh, and uh, who is coming. And uh, he fits the whole Trinity in uh, the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit is the Holy Spirit. And then from Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, He has freed us from our sins and he has made us a kingdom and priests. Uh, There are a lot of great thoughts in there. Uh, Every one of them, like we said, if uh, unless we had more time for application, uh, we'd like to get into each of those. So one of the things that uh, Jeremy and I were talking about is that next year, what we'd like to do is go through Revelation just really in depth. So uh, if, you, if that's something you're interested, please let us or Pastor Hagen know, because uh, we want to be able to take the time to really study this like we would do in a Bible study. Well, verse 12, uh, jumping ahead, is John saying, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I saw when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man. He's clothed with a robe that reaches his feet. Around his chest, he wore a gold sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool or like snow. His eyes were like blazing flames. His feet were like polished bronze being refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand. A sharp two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. His face was shining in the sun uh, as the sun shines in all of its brightness. So, Jeremy, who is this? Uh, this is actually Jesus. And this is a great uh, point at which to say, should we take the book of Revelation literally? Um, it, and actually, the answer is yes. Please do take Revelation literally because the word literally means according to the word. Um that, but the words in this case show us that uh, we shouldn't interpret Jesus. The, the words themselves are telling us that the, they are to be uh, figures of speech or, or picture language. Because when uh, you see Jesus for all of eternity with his truly human body, um, he's not going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. Right. And so we'll explain each of these descriptions real, real briefly. And that the seven golden lampstands, those are the seven churches. They give off light. They are to be the light of the world. And Christians are to be the light of the world. They're gold because they're precious to Christ. Jesus is walking among the lampstands because he's walking among the congregations. He knows what they're up to. Uh, The seven stars are the seven pastors of the seven churches. And Jesus holds them firmly in his right hand. Uh, The sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth is uh, the law and gospel, the two edges. Uh, The shining face points to his deity. The white is a symbol of righteousness and purity. Uh, Jesus' eyes are like blazing flames. It reminds us he sees all things. His feet are like polished bronze. It reminds us that he'll trample his enemies. Uh, The gold sash may point to Jesus as our high priest. And all of this is a cumulative effect of uh, John then falling down before Jesus like a dead man in verse 17. But this is also the normal reaction of any sinner in the presence of a holy God. Uh, But the goal of the rest of Revelation is Jesus taking away the reason for that fear. I uh, I always make sure that there's usually more than one uh, possibility for each of those features that Jesus has, um, whether it's his eyes or his hair, uh, it could be purity, things like that. Um, the the one that I always like to say for his uh, bronze feet is uh, it's it's true that that. And this is why both of them work. It's not like the one is right and the other is wrong or that they exclude each other. They, they both can be true at the same time. Uh, the other interpretation I like to give to that uh, feet with like bronze glowing in a furnace is that uh, when you look at uh, those feet, how much of them are iron or metal? Uh, what percentage of, of, his, of the feet in this vision are metal? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Uh, I would say a hundred percent. There you go. 
They're 100% and what percentage of them are heat? I'm going to... I don't know. <laughs> are 100%. 100%. Right. So, so you've got 100% heat and 100% metal. Uh, that's a good illustration for how there can be a, a, a being who is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. The deity can permeate the humanity of Christ. Um, and th- there are a lot of illustrations that fall short. You know, two boards glued together, that's not such a good illustration. But heat penetrating metal is a good illustration of Jesus' deity permeating his humanity. I have never heard that application as those. Oh. So that's good. Yeah. All right. You Something go new on? every day, right? There you go. You want to go into chapter two? Or? Yes, go ahead. All right. Chapter two. Now, uh, chapters two and three are... The letters that uh, John is then dic- uh, you know, writing this down to be able to give to these seven churches. And the letters typically have seven parts. And now not every letter has every part, but there is a greeting, a description of Christ, praise for the congregation's good points, condemnation for its bad points, a warning to repent, an exhortation to heed the message, and then a promise to be faithful. So the first message is to the church in Ephesus. Uh, before we get into that one, I just wanted to propose a game. All right. Uh, how, you don't have to do it right up front, but uh, what do you say since uh, you're, you're, you're our pastor and uh, our congregation is Water of Life, uh, Caledonia and Racine, um, how about uh, by the end of it, if, we, if you and I have each picked out one letter that we think would be uh, geared toward Water of Life Racine today, or Water of Life Caledonia today, okay. um, and see which letter you think would be most fitting. Yeah, and, and that's a good game because I was going to uh, suggest everyone listening to this to think about with each of these uh, where do you see yourself and your congregation? And it can be all of them because each of these will apply to you. So uh, the first, first one with Ephesus, uh, Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, and your patient endurance. Uh, so uh, what are Ephesus' strong points, Jeremy? Uh, they seem to be very... Uh geared up and, and on fire for true doctrine. Um, Jesus says that uh, they hate the uh, Nicolaite, the, the actions of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. Uh, Jesus hates something. He hates false teaching. And we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, but apparently they were false teachers that proposed to be Christian. And, and I think, because uh, he mentions them twice, that... Uh, they apparently encouraged immoral living, you know, you know claiming that, well, God's going to forgive you anyway. At least that's what the Bible scholars have suggested the problem of the Nicolaitans was. Sure. Sounds, sounds about right. Yeah. So Ephesus is a hardworking congregation, uh, and yet there's a condemnation uh, that uh, they were serious about holding on to the truth, and they examined the teachings of the so-called apostles uh, but they may not have always been very uh, loving in how they did things. And uh, more apathetic, um, maybe kind of lackluster, thinking that, uh, well, it, maybe, maybe a good application today would be that uh, it's not our emotion. I think far too many people in society think that our emotions get to rule us or, or our feelings get to decide what kind of person or life we lead. And that's not true. The other end of the spectrum is to pretend like you have no feelings at all or that emotions are a bad thing. And that's maybe where the Ephesians are here is thinking, uh, uh, you know, divorcing themselves from emotion and and not really uh, caring. He says, you've forsaken your first love. Uh, You you don't follow me with uh, lots of affection anymore. You just kind of follow me. Yeah. And then the warning is that he can remove the lampstand. He can take away that church. Anything else on Ephesus? Uh, let's move on to Smyrna. Uh, but one thing too uh, is each one of these has a a blessing kind of at the end, a promise. And I wanted to didn't want to miss that promise is to the one who is victorious, I'll give the privilege to eat from the tree of life. So the idea of that Adam and Eve were not able to eat from the tree of life, and now 
those in Ephesus and the rest of us as Christians are pictured in Revelation of eating from that tree. So the next one is Smyrna. What's the problem in Smyrna? Uh, well, they the problem seems to be coming a little more from the outside. Um, in fact, this would be one of those letters of the seven that uh, doesn't have any... Um, yeah, this is one of them that doesn't have any uh, uh, condemnation. Right. So they were persecuted and they're poor. Uh, and that's probably because of the Jewish enemies of the church. He says that uh, they are, I know the blasphemy that comes from those who say they're Jews, but are not rather they're the synagogue of Satan. Uh, so people were rejecting Christ and then holding on to their Jewishness, their Judaism, all the things we talked about earlier, like with the book of Revelation. Maybe, Not Revelation, with Galatians. Maybe a, a way to think about this in modern times is uh, that there are Lutherans who call themselves Lutherans, and Jesus would say, no, they are not. They, they, they do not hold to my teaching. Um, uh, this, this is one, uh, verse 10, that is uh, a popular confirmation verse. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, a good thing to remind our confirmands as they make vows to uh, join Christ's church. And he says, uh, look, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, and you'll suffer for 10 days. Uh, most of us would think that the 10 days isn't a literal 10 days, but... Uh, 10 in Revelation is often a number of completeness, that there's going to be a time when enough is enough and God will end the persecution. And then he says with the blessing, the promise, he who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And that second death then is the eternal death in hell. Uh, in Pergamum, uh, Jesus again commends them because uh, he says they're living in the place where the throne of Satan is. Uh, that must have been some kind of epicenter for immorality or, or at least for uh, hypocrisy, uh, godlessness. Um, and, uh, and he says, you're, you're remaining faithful to me even in the midst of all of that. But uh, he, does, he says, I do have a few things against you. Uh, there are... Uh, people who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who instructed Balak. Um, uh, can you go into any detail on uh, what that means? So Balaam was hired by Balak, the king, uh, when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And uh, Balaam was hired to curse Israel, but he couldn't. He instead I had to give them a blessing. Instead, what Balaam told Balak to do was come up with a plan to lead the children of Israel into sexual immorality. So then God will curse the people. Uh, and apparently that might be what the Nicolaitans are doing again uh, here. Uh, it's a good explanation. Yeah, I never, never heard that, but uh, that would be a good explanation uh, for, for what the Nicolaitans are like since they're put so much in similarity with Balaam and Balak. Um, did you have anything else on Pergamum? And then the commendation uh, is interesting too. Uh, verse 17, uh, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Uh, so a lot of our churches right now are listening to the gospel of John chapter six and on Sunday mornings of the living bread, uh, the bread from heaven. That's Jesus. And he says, I will give him a white stone with a name, a new name written on it. So that white stone is, uh, would have been used for a verdict of innocence. Uh, and then, so the custom was that a Greek jury or the judge would vote for acquittal with a white stone. And a new name is given to several people in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham instead of Abram, Israel instead of Jacob. And so that's uh, connecting them to a new life of innocence and a new name with Christ. The next letter goes to the church in Thyatira. And here you can see um, kind of a, a patient, loving teacher or parent working with a, a stubborn or slow, maybe slow-witted little child uh, because it's kind of like 
you're not doing a whole lot good, but I am going to at least give you some credit for doing something good. Um, he says, you are, you are doing more now than you did at first. You're making some progress. This is good. But then he goes into a whole long list of things that, uh, that he has against this church. And uh, one of them is that woman Jezebel. Um, this could be a figurative reference to the Old Testament Jezebel that would have been well known uh, to the uh, members of the church. And uh, they would have immediately associated there. There was some woman at their church who was actually acting or behaving in a way similar to the queen in the Old Testament, Jezebel. Um, it seems kind of unlikely that her name would have actually been Jezebel. Yeah, and then the issue is that uh, the people were uh, condoning her in the congregation. And so Jesus says in verse 24, to the rest of you who don't hold to this teaching, uh, you know, just hold fast until I come. And then he says, again, the blessing, I will give him authority over the nations and he'll rule over them with an iron staff and shatter them like clay pots. Just as I myself have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. So he's saying that uh, if they stay strong, they have Christ with them because he describes himself later on in Revelation as the morning star. It could have been... um Actual immorality as actual sexual sins that uh, were being committed with her. Uh, it could have been idolatry of some sort that was leading them away from worshiping the true God. But then again, that just shows you how in God's mind, uh, the two things are so similar, uh, being unfaithful to him in spirit, just as much as uh, any kind of physical adultery. And then we go into chapter three and we're looking at the... Uh, the church in Sardis. Uh, so this is a place where uh, coinage had been invented. So that glory had now faded. It seems the congregation had experienced the same kind of persecution as the other churches. Uh, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what's left, which is about to die. And so it seems like maybe congregations today that there's a lot going on. They seem alive, but spiritually they're dead. Uh, And yet uh, he does give them credit or or he praises them for uh, having a few people who are worthy. They've not defiled their clothes. They will walk with me in white clothing. Um, They they remain true to their baptism. They uh, continued to stay dressed in the righteousness that did not come from their own creating of it, but uh, from Jesus and his death and resurrection. Yeah. And then the blessing is to the one who is victorious in this way will be clothed in white clothing. So that, that blessing of the baptismal gown, and I'll certainly not erase his name from the book of life, the name uh, that uh, God wrote in heaven, Uh, as he predestined us to be saved. And he wrote that in his book, Never to be Erased Again. Uh, Philadelphia is, uh, that's one city. Maybe there are other towns that are in a a small town America or places I haven't heard of uh, that are named after these other cities. But uh, Philadelphia is one that we do have uh, here in Pennsylvania. It means brotherly love. And uh, at the same time, Uh, Jesus does not have a whole lot of um, good things to say about them. Uh, Does he? Uh, Yeah. So it's interesting the way he describes himself, the one who is holy and true. He has the key of David. So that would have been like uh, Eliakim with King David. He had the, he was a faithful steward to open or close the door of David's storehouses for the people of Judah. And there Eliakim is a picture of Jesus. Uh, And he says, I know your works. You have an open door, which no one can shut the, the door of salvation. He says, you don't have much strength, uh, but you have kept my word about patient endurance. I'll also keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come over the whole inhabited world. So he says, uh, you've patiently endured. uh, Now you got to keep doing it. Uh, because more persecution is coming on you. Uh, Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. So just keep 
uh, keep holding on with patient endurance. Uh, that was the um, confirmation verse of this uh, German immigrant woman that I served in uh, Benton Harbor. And uh, she said that uh, she went, when they came to America, she was sponsored by her uh, husband's aunt and they wanted to uh, take them to their Pentecostal church. And she said, boy, I, uh, I think I told this story before, but, but she told it to me more than once. So I get to repeat it more than once. Uh, she, she said, I survived the bombs in Germany, but I've never gone through anything like that Pentecostal service. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and she wrote to her pastor, her Lutheran pastor back in Germany, who confirmed her and said, what should we do? And he said, remember your confirmation verse. And she, and she looked back at it and it was this one, um, uh, hold on to what you have so that no one may take your crown away. And that was when, uh, she decided we, we need to start going to a Lutheran church. Yeah. And then he, Jesus gives them the blessing too of being a pillar. Again, being a pillar means standing strong. And then he talks about uh, writing on him the name of my God and the name of my city, the new Jerusalem, which is a great picture that we're going to be looking at in chapters 21 and 22. Uh, oh, sorry. Yep. You were done? Yes. I, I just wanted to say that before when I sort of trailed off with a question about, does he say anything good about Philadelphia? I think I was confusing them with Laodicea, right. where he doesn't really say anything good. And uh, this is going to bring me back again to Benton Harbor, because uh, one of the longstanding pastors there before me, uh, his wife was uh, still a member. I think she still is a member there. And uh, she would talk about how once per year... Uh, it was usually around uh, early fall or late summer that uh, it, it, Pastor Biedenbender would uh, preach a sermon on Revelation chapter 3, this uh letter to the church in Laodicea where he talks about neither being hot nor cold nor cold and she remembered hearing that every year uh, he would talk about how the the members of the church maybe were starting to get lethargic or apathetic in their uh, service to the church and uh, and he would he would say you I will spit you out of my mouth just quoting Jesus uh, lines here, uh, but it, it's a, it's a serious thing uh, to to realize Jesus. What is the opposite of love? Apathy. Yeah, yeah. It's not hate because at least hate you you, know, you love hating or you you you're passionate you're about passionate exactly. And when you're apathetic, I mean, what's the problem today? Uh, with a little bit of application is looking at, uh, there's so many employers that are looking for people to work, and they're not. Well, why not? Well, they're, they're receiving so much income from the government, they're apathetic. They're just happy uh, as young people living in their parents' basement, playing video games, uh, going to the beach, and so forth, because they're taken care of. And they're apathetic, and you can't get them motivated. And that's the way we become with our faith so often. Uh, the letter to Laodicea ends with that uh, popular passage. It, it's been in many pictures, uh, paintings, and uh, songs and music. Uh, Jesus standing at the door and knocking. Um, it's not Jesus giving you uh, a chance to make a decision to uh, start believing in him, uh, or even as I've heard Roman Catholic uh, theology, which very much agrees with uh, a lot of uh, Baptist decision theology, saying uh, you, it's about your free will. You have to decide to get up and open the door. No, you, uh, you wouldn't even have thought about opening the door without the knocking first happening. Right. Two things with that, because uh, I've asked some of our Wells pastors that have this picture of Jesus knocking on the door in their church you know, and asking them if that is the kind of theology you were describing. And one of the things one pastor mentioned to me is notice where the doorknob is in those paintings. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. The doorknob is on the outside where mm. Jesus is. It's not on the inside where the person is. What that means is... Uh, Jesus is knocking. You're not opening the door. Jesus is opening the door. Jesus is just being polite. Yeah, yeah. And and another thing too is to understand, uh, Jesus is converting your will. You know, we like to talk about, or 
other other theologians and other churches will talk about, you know, we have free will. No, we don't. We have a will that also needs to be converted. So Jesus is knocking on the door to convert our will so that we say yes, and then he comes in. Uh, this brings us to chapter four. And uh, maybe the best way to think of chapter four is um, by going back to Genesis one and, and two, uh, and, and probably three as well. Uh, it's the sinful world, uh, but it's the, it's the created world. Um, we, see, we see symbols and, and uh, representations of everything that God has created in, in a physical sense and, and in a, a spiritual sense and in the invisible creation, the angels as well. But uh, it, it doesn't tell us, chapter four really doesn't tell us anything about how we're saved or redeemed or uh, justified in God's sight. It just tells us that God is great because of what he created and how he created it. Yeah, so chapter 4 begins the second section of Revelation. It contains the first in a series of visions that continue through the vision of the new Jerusalem. So John sees God's throne, which is where the future is determined and guided. And there's going to be a lot of visions and symbols that we meet in this chapter that I said before are going to be repeated in this book. Just like I'm repeating myself, these visions repeat themselves. And verse one, after these things, I looked and there was a door open in heaven. So we can see what's happening to the church here on earth. And it's pretty scary. You look at what's happening to the church here in America. You can see what's happening around the world. And you see what's happening the last few weeks in Afghanistan. You know, the Taliban, they're persecuting uh, other Muslims, but they're also definitely going to be turning their attention on Christians. And it's pretty scary. Uh, but what we cannot see from our, uh, where we're situated here on earth is what's happening for the church in heaven. But here in Revelation, we're per- permitted to peek through the curtain and see what Jesus is doing in heaven. And that's, comp- and that's comforting. Uh, and this is very similar to Daniel chapter 7. Uh, so that's what I said before. As you read the rest of the Bible, you see these reoccurring themes and pictures in Revelation. Uh, the, we, we could spend a lot of time with any one of these symbols, kind of like we did with Jesus uh, and, and the form that he took when uh, he appeared to John in chapter 1. Um, but uh, I, I just like talking about the uh, figure who was seated on the throne. The one sitting there looked like, uh, this is in verse 3, the one sitting there looked like a jasper stone and a ruby. And I think the point is that those are stones that you can see through. So it, it's kind of like, uh, well, how about I go with a movie reference for you? All right. Uh, so James Bond uh, in, in the uh, movie where he had the car that had cameras on one side that projected an image to the other side so that basically the idea was that they had invented an invisible car uh, that that cameras on one side of it would project to screens on the other little screens on the other side of it so it looked like you could see through it Um, so you could kind of see that there was a car moving around if you were looking closely but otherwise it looked like it was invisible and I think that's uh, John's first century way of trying to describe the figure seated on the throne. You can't see God. Uh, even when he's in heaven, uh, looking at the, the vision of glory, um, he is seeing right through this figure uh, that looks like a human being, but actually kind of looks like a translucent stone. He's brilliant beyond sight. And then who is around the throne are uh, 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones and they're wearing white garments with gold crowns on their heads. So Jeremy, what I've always learned and then taught was that these 24 elders are the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. I taught something completely different. That's why I thought I'd ask you. No, I actually, I taught that same thing. <laughs> but I did want to say that uh, when I talk about that translucent figure before, um, 
that's I, I like saying that's God the Father I, because Jesus is coming in chapter 5. So if you're worried about not seeing Jesus in heaven, uh, you will get to see him. Uh, he is visible. He does have a human body. Whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Uh, th- th- we're, we're kind of talking about God in his essence uh, more than uh, Christ in, in that figure on the throne. And so you have these 24 elders representing the entire Christian church, as we confess in the creed, the holy Christian church. And they're in heaven praising Jesus. And then in front of the throne is a sea, but it's described as a glass sea. And the way I describe that is uh, think of in the old, you know, in the Old Testament, as well as the first couple centuries, how terrifying the sea was for people. You know, there is no way of controlling it. The sea, even today, there's no way of controlling the sea when the wind and the waves start whipping. And yet, this is perfectly calm. It's it's like glass. You you can't control God, can you? We we that's kind of the the false notion about any deity is that I, if I can do the right thing, then I can get the deity to do what I want. Uh, well, no, God is like the sea; you can't control him. Um, and then you have the four living creatures. You want to describe them? Well, the thing is uh, about these creatures, they uh, sort of encompass all of the living beings that you would find on the earth. You've got different types of uh, creatures that fly. Uh, you've got humankind. You've got um, tame animals. That would be the ox. Uh, and then you've got wild animals. That would be the lion. Um, so uh, whether it's birds and fish, they were created on the same day. The the tame animals, domesticated ones, or the wild animals, the lion or the human beings, um, you have every living uh, creature encompassed in these four creatures. And they're angels. Uh, I'm preaching on St. Michael and all angels, and we talk uh, about angels so often we picture them with two wings and looking very human-like, except with wings. And yet uh, you have the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 that are six wings and fiery angels. Uh, You have St. Michael the archangel who is like the five-star general of God's uh, angelic army, you have Gabriel and others that are messengers, but then you have these uh, angels that look nothing like us as humans. And uh, But again, these are very similar to what you see in the book of Ezekiel. The, uh, the, the main theme of this chapter, again, ends with... Um God created them, uh, that uh, God and God cares about his creation. His creation is a big deal to him. That's why he wanted to redeem it. Um, but uh, that that pretty well wraps up uh, chapter four, I think. So one question for you before we move on is, does Revelation describe events that might happen or that will happen? Uh, that, that will happen. Yeah. yeah. So everything in Revelation is... Something that's going going to happen because God is seated on his throne. And when would these be, events begin to happen? Well, they're going to begin to happen right away. After this, verse 1, uh, after God had completed his revelation to St. John, all of these things begin happening. So like I said before in the introduction, this is, revelation is describing from Jesus' ascension to his uh, coming again on the last day. So uh, John then in chapter 5 talks about a scroll in the right hand of God. And there is writing all over this scroll. There's a lot of writing on it, and it's sealed with seven seals. And uh, the way that I describe this for the students when I teach it is... um, Let's think of this scroll as world history, and um, how many of you would like to know what is in your future? And of course, everybody would like, I would like we, we all want to know what's going to happen in the future. And that's kind of what the angel is asking in verse 2, who is worthy to know the future? Uh, God's the one who knows the future. God has this scroll in his hand, uh, but who is worthy, who, who's going to be able to figure this out? And uh, he looks all over the place in, in verses 3 through 5. Uh, 
and uh, doesn't, or I'm sorry, three and four. And he is so sad because he finds nobody on earth or in heaven is able to know the future. No human being is able to know the future. But wait, there is one human being who is able to know the future. And that's, that's what we, uh, we find in verse five. I'm, I'm stalling and trying to cover time here as, uh, as pastor Zarling looks something up in the, uh, worship supplement. Yeah. Keep talking. Oh, I found it. I found what I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, that no one can open this except Jesus Christ himself. Uh, and then as you said, that there's a scroll and it's written on both sides. Usually you would only write on the, on the one side, but that just says how much uh, there is in here. And then uh, John says, I saw verse six, I saw a lamb standing in the center near the throne, but he's also described as the lion. Well, how can Christ be both a lion and a lamb? Oh, are you looking up Christus paradox? Yes. So what I was looking up was one of the hymns in the supplement, and I don't know if this is going to be in the new hymnal, but it says, you are both lamb and shepherd. You are both prince and slave. You are peacemaker and sword bringer. Uh, Verse two, clothed in light upon the mountain, stripped of might upon the cross, shining in eternal glory, beggared by a soldier's toss. you who walk each day beside us, sit in power at God's, at God's side. You who preach a way that narrow, have a love that reaches wide. And then verse 4, worthy is our earthly Jesus. Worthy is our cosmic Christ. Worthy your defeat and victory. Worthy still your peace and strife. You the everlasting instant. You who are our death and life. Yeah, the Christus paradox. The, the paradox that Christ can be both lamb and uh, lying at the same time. Or one that's even more familiar to us, how can he be the Lamb of God and the Good Shepherd? He, he is both God and man. So there is a man now, there is one human being who can and does know the future. Uh, the Verse six says, I saw a lamb standing in the center near the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures. He seemed to have been slain. So there's an emphasis of Jesus uh, suffering and death. Uh, and he had seven horns and seven eyes. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and from the son. Uh, and, and the lamb came, verse seven, the lamb came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Uh, and uh, so now that, now that there's a human being who can and does know the future, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders all bowed down and worshiped. And, and they sang a song. Would you do some singing for us, please? I will not do some singing for you, but thanks for asking. Do you know how many comments I got from people on Sunday about... You, I think you talk so much about your singing abilities that uh, you, you've trained your members to talk about it, too. Yeah, because they know. Well, I'll have people say, Pastor, that was really good. And I say, it probably was good, but I don't know how I did it. It just happens. Uh, but... One thing too is the lamb that was slain, and you'll see some image, uh, some imagery of the slain lamb, the sacrificial lamb. Uh, we have a painting here at Water of Life of Jesus as the slain lamb, but he's just looking like a lamb that's sitting on the throne with a wound in his side, which corresponds to the other painting of Jesus slain as the man uh, on the cross and piercing that same side. Uh, there's a really interesting painting turned also into a banner uh, by Scapegoat Studios. This, the artist is, uh, his last name is Mayer. And uh, I, I'd encourage you to look at this for your church. It's a picture of the slain lamb. So the blood is coming out of his throat, but then it's uh, f- all the blood is on a black background and the blood forms the seven continents of the earth. So it's the, the lamb has shed his blood for the salvation of everyone. And this lamb that is slain, we see that imagery, but we don't usually see imagery like this where he's slain and then he has seven eyes and seven horns. Uh, And one commentator pointed out that some creatures in Revelation have eyes And some have horns, but only Jesus has both eyes and horns. 
And why is that comforting is because horns throughout the Old Testament and now in Revelation symbolize power uh, and eyes symbolize insight and the power of the Holy Spirit. And only Jesus knows what to do and through his Holy Spirit have the power to, uh, to do it. So our perfect Savior, again, with this imagery, is in control of all things, and he has died for all people. I just thought of the last thing that I want to say about this chapter, um, and it has to do with verse 10, and then I'm going to be done for the day. Um, but it, it's in verse 10, it says that uh, Jesus has made us to be a kingdom and priests for our God. And what a shocking and jarring thing that would be for uh, people growing up in the Old Testament era and, and in, the, in the early Christian church. Um, you can be a king and you can be a priest, but you can't be both. Uh, and, and it's interesting that they, even long ago, made that distinction between church and state. What is it that people want to do when they want to consolidate power? I want to be able to rule people's souls and their bodies. The church is always trying to overtake the state's power. The state's always trying to take over the church's power. Um, uh, either way, we always want to be in control of everything, bodies and souls. Uh, kind of like what you were saying about the insight with the eyes and the horns. Um, you can't have both, but Jesus does. And the interesting thing is that because of Christ, we do get to inherit both. We do get to be a kingdom and priests. Uh, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the uh, high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's a king and a priest at the same time. Uh, and uh, by grace alone, uh, that's also what he's made us. And with that thought of kings and priests, uh, that's why we can sleep easy tonight is because we have a savior who died for us. He is a savior who has these eyes and horns. So he's in control, ruling all things for our good. And he's going to fulfill his covenant to us and keep us safe until he returns. So wrapping up chapters four and five, they really lay the foundation for Jesus Christ's revelation to St. John. Chapter 4 gives us a vision of God's throne, the center of power and activity in the universe. And chapter 5 gives us a vision of Jesus, the lamb who was slain and the lion who rules over God's kingdom forever. So Jesus lets us know that we are a part of his kingdom and we are going to be ruling alongside of him no matter what the future may hold for us. So next week, we'll continue in Revelation. This is Pastor Zarling with Shazam. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.